Hello, I'm Jennifer Thompson. And I'm Chad Thompson. And we are your hosts of The The Premise, Premise. where we get to the story behind the storyteller. And this season four, that's right, we're in season four. We've got some amazing storytellers lined up, and we really appreciate you listening. Be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Let's roll. Autobots, roll out. Hello and welcome to The Premise. Hi, Chad. Hello. Welcome back. Hey, good to be here. I am really... Not that I ever leave, but... I know, we don't ever leave. We live here, folks. This is actually our home. We're in this one small room. We never leave. Just here for you. (laughs) Today we are speaking with, and I am super excited... Madhushri Ghosh. She is an author, a scientist, a cook, and I'm thinking a damn good one, an immigrant and a daughter of refugees. Her book, Kabar, An Immigrant Journey of Food, Memory, and Family, was a Ms. Magazine most anticipated read in 2022. Her work has been awarded a notable mention in Best American Essays on Food Writing and a Pushcart nomination. She has been published in the New York Times, Washington Post, LA Times, Long Reads, LARB, and others. Madhushri works in oncology diagnostics and is a social justice activist who is focused on gender pay, parody in science, and food stories of immigrants. Madhushri, welcome to The Premise. Hi, how are you? Very good. I'm so glad to have you here. Likewise. So I've really been looking forward to this conversation. Um, Our listeners might remember that you appeared at our fourth annual San Diego Writers Festival in Coronado this past October. Which was just such a fantastic experience. Oh, thank you. you. It was lovely. I'm so glad you were there. And I I bought your book then Mm. and read it. And so I've been telling myself I have to have Madhushri on the podcast. And now we're sort of doing a cross promotion with TEDx San Diego, because you are going to be speaking at TEDx on June 11th at the Conrad Previs in La Jolla. So this is sort of a thank you for being at the festival. And folks, you have to go listen to Madhushri at the TEDx event. Thank you. Yeah, I I think I talk about what I like to talk about what I think about. And I think it's it's pretty universal. what we talk about when we talk about food. That's my TEDx talk. But yeah. really, it's an extension of my my food narrative memoir, Kabar. Mm. Kabar, which means food, right? That, that means food in Bengali. You learned yeah. one, um, one Bengali word, so congratulations. <laughs> well, I learned it from you. <laughs> you know, your writing is poetic and it's palpable. There's this tenderness and this joy, and yet there's also a sadness in your writing. It's a journey that I think everyone should take, a journey into what it means to be human, what it means to belong. It's about family and how food and culture ground us. Why did you write this book? Huh. That's, that's such an uh, introspective way of looking at what I wrote. I Personally, when people meet me, they come back and say, well, you're writing, you've gone through a lot of hell, you've gone through a lot of uh, ups and downs, but for someone who's been through so much, you are mighty jolly. And Mm. so I find Mm -hmm. this very interesting because (laughs) I think think what I write is how we are when we are alone and we are being brutally honest with ourselves and being very 
introspective of what happened and why and what do we make of it. Yeah. I think I'm an eternal optimist. Hmm. I mean, I work in oncology diagnostics. That should tell you more. So, <laughs> I'm not sure. I want to know more about that, but we'll get to it. Yeah. So, so you know, you have to really, really look at life, what life throws at us. And especially as writers, um, rejection is uh, part of our 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 DNA. So, mm. so you're used to that. But more importantly, as a writer, even your life experiences, you look at it from a writerly perspective. And yeah. so, uh, so when I'm writing my essays, uh, I'm not really thinking this is an essay that's going to be part of this memoir, and everybody's going to read it because I'm that awesome. No, the the point of writing something like this is there's always an underlying social justice issue because mm-hmm. I'm I'm. I come from a family of social justice activists. My father uh, was part of the freedom struggle when India uh, got its uh, independence from Britain in 1947. He was a kid and living in what's now Bangladesh and uh, moved as a refugee back into India. So in our family, from my father's side, we talk about what he did as a child. From my mother's side, uh, it's a family of journalists. So we've always had discussions uh, about politics and how the macro politics gets into the micro and uh, how does that affect our lives. I think for us in this country, we've been being a superpower for so long has made us as citizens very complacent about mm-hmm. what we have. It's only in 2016 that a lot of us took pause to say, hey, I may want to know what your political leanings are. Yeah. Um, and then and then came the intolerance of either side. Yeah. And, and that happens. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg talked about this, is that, you know, when the pendulum swings, it swings wildly. And so, so you're observing the churn because we are all trying to figure out where we land. So this is a long way of saying, I write what I feel and what, what I feel is important that the world needs to know. Mm. And if someone identifies, even if it's one reader who identifies with it, to me, that's my audience. I really felt like you were telling the world, open your eyes, pay attention. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, in the authors, and maybe you Americans, know, maybe I should be more clear about that. Not just the world, but Americans in particular, you know, like we we're in such a bubble that we think, oh, that'll never happen to me. Like you even mentioned that about the pandemic, you know, what's happening in China. And we're like, well, that won't happen here. Yeah. Well, it's also interesting in, in terms of how classist racist and discriminatory we all are Mm -hmm. and i'll give you the pandemic as an example you know anti-china sentiments rose we've had um, asian american uh, and pacific islander violence that has increased significantly um, all coming out of fear all coming out of the fact that there was a financial um, downturn for us because of this pandemic but we had a similar situation uh, right after 9-11 too. So um, the first uh, victim post 9-11 was a Punjabi Sikh gas station owner in um, Flagstaff, Arizona. Not, not Muslim, but a Sikh, uh, not from the Middle East, but from India. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason why I mentioned that is number one, you should not be killing anybody. <laughs> Right. That's a fact. Yeah. That, however, however, lesson get, number one. <laughs> yeah. Get your geography right. My God, you people. Yeah. Buy right. an atlas. Yeah. 
<laughs> like literally buy buy a buy a globe like because you're looking online and you don't you can't even find it you'll put it in your google maps and say oh yeah it's 7000 miles away yeah but do you know the other countries that surround it do you know the political geography of mm. it so get so. your hate right come on folks <laughs> exactly hate hate but uh, hate you, right you may man maybe asking a little much <laughs> way too much and that's the whole fucking point you know yeah. people who hate are not opening their eyes they're not open oh it's very frustrating it's very well frustrating. i think it, it has to do with education i'm talking like my mother mm-hmm. again mm-hmm. but it, it has to do with education <laughs> i've been here since 93 uh, uh you know decades before a lot of the listeners were born right but yeah. 93 is when i noticed um that that's teachers had to buy supplies for their children for their students mm-hmm. um you know folks were more busy trying to figure out now folks are more busy trying to ban books rather than teach for example <laughs> reproductive rights mm-hmm. um you know i was a nerd i continue to remain a nerd so for me information is 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 an exciting way of living life you'll die as much as i will but at the end of the day did i have a fulfilling life because i learned about a culture i never would have yes i would say so so if you're going from 93 to 2023 in all these years the state of education through different states has incrementally fallen so it's an exponential fall so you cannot expect millennials or gen zers to have the same kind of curiosity we did as a gen x or or if someone's a someone's a boomer that kind of knowledge that kind of interest in let's say science math is not there because we have not given them the tools so why are we complaining so mm. you know if they are hating without context it's because we taught them that oh absolutely so, so yeah. we have to take that responsibility from our side too that you know we too are responsible for it. hate is just not one way it goes both ways but i do feel like gen zers are opening their eyes more than i think any well i don't know sort of reminds me of the 60s you know where yeah, kids are so like you know what i'm done with this yeah so i really i was just talking to another friend about that i am enjoying watching millennials and gen zers mm-hmm. a lot, millennials get a lot of hate and the problem is i don't think folks understand millennials but the thing is they are the ones who really told us that you're not working for the company so you you lose your uh, uh, astitva or your existence um, to that company mm-hmm. family is important and this is what i want to do seeing the world is important and i'm not apologizing for it if i'm yeah. done i will stop yeah yeah gen zers have taken it to the next level because they they also f- experienced what the millennials have and now we have given them a world um that might end tomorrow so yeah, i mean i right. don't think i grew up thinking oh the world's ending tomorrow <laughs> i just said you know okay you know we just had maybe a degree or so rise in the 10 years i was a kid you know mm. um and whereas with with uh, this generation that's that it's urgent for them it's immediate this is yeah. uh, this yeah. is a, a time of survival climate change is is happening it has happened and we haven't paid attention and we are giving them a world that is shit yeah and we're not changing it like we're not taking those steps that no. should have been made but we're headed down a road that's getting very depressing no because personal changes won't change shit like just well, recycling exactly right. isn't going to change anything yeah. you know reducing yeah. your fuel consumption has to happen on a systemic level mm-hmm. right 
Mm-hmm. How the hell did we get here? How did we get here? <laughs> I know. It's well, important. It's really important we talk about it. We can't stick our head in the sand. Uh, and, and I think the what I love about your book is that it gets you to think. So you somehow brilliantly managed to write a book about family, about food, about immigration, about nationalism, you know, about all of these things that are really important and just these little like, I was like, wow, she's teaching us little lessons. How did she do that? <laughs> and yet I read from cover to cover and never once did I feel like I was being preached at. I never felt like you, you're really trying to educate me, but you did educate me. And I appreciate yeah, awesome. that very much. Yeah. I mean, that, that nobody likes to be talked down to. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Right. I mean, why would you? And, and the fact is, I love sharing information. I'm online all the time, way hmm. too much that I should be. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I'll go down these rabbit holes and it is just so much fun to come back and say, guess what I learned, hmm. you know? So mm-hmm. for ex- I have tons and tons of food writer friends who are doing amazing social activism uh, in their countries. So one of them, um, Ishe Govinder is, is a, is a uh, South African food writer. Go get her book if you can. I-S-H-A-Y is her first name. Um, and she's talked about bunny chow. So, so I oh, reached out to her. we want to talk about bunny chow. I know, yeah. right? Yeah. So, you know, I, I didn't know about it much. Mm. But the thing is, so she talked about what it was, how it's being perceived now. And, you know, it, it's a Durban dish. But in Cape Town, it looks different. In Pretoria, it looks different, which is very fascinating. But if you're really looking at it from the social justice perspective, it is a representation of racism. Yeah, it's a representation. It's a dish that's a it's a sandwich hollowed out white bread with uh, with lamb curry or vegetable curry that was sold by the uh, bunnyas or the uh, business people. In, yeah, there's uh, no bunny in bunny chow. Yeah, there is no bunny in bunny chow. Maybe that's what I should write more about. There's no bunny in bunny chow. Um, and, uh, and and so they would sell it uh, and they would sell it to uh, the black uh, South Africans and wrap it in a newspaper and, and you know, send them their way. So the establishment establishment was whites only. Mm-hmm. So that way you're maintaining the status quo. That's why I'm saying, you know, when we mm-hmm. come, it's easy to hate a particular group because it's low hanging fruit and say, oh, white people segregated. Uh, but brown people like us also helped in that segregation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the earlier we acknowledge, the earlier we can start to work towards it. So for me, it's not, uh, let me tell you how awful you are. And I want you to sit in that awfulness because you're so horrible because of your race. My question is, what are we going to do about it? Because life is short. Are we making a difference? Yeah, I do feel like, and maybe this is naive on my part, but I do feel like there's a shift getting ready to happen and people are ready to stop yelling at each other and blaming and start talking. Because that's the thing about, especially in America, you know, politically speaking, we're so busy yelling at each other and blaming each other that we're not really paying attention to what's happening. And we're all Mm. affected and we all want the same things, right? We want family and we want to be able to feed our family and be comfortable. And it's getting harder and harder. And yet that division is, I think, a direct result of yelling at each other. Yeah, I think 2016 to 2023, we are exhausted with hate. Mm. It's Mm -hmm. pretty obvious. We're We're exhausted with hate. A lot of us who are news junkies are actively staying away from the news because um, it's not productive. 
it's yeah. not productive at all to continue to look at it. but I, like personally for me i am i am very actively involved in local news not politics local news because this is the community that matters this is yeah. the community i'm going to live and die in so it has to make a di- i have to make a difference as much as my neighbor has to so during the pandemic what are you doing i mean i i didn't know what else to do i was going back shit crazy so i was cooking uh, <laughs> up a storm and i had nobody to feed it so my neighbors you know really benefited from that you know i'm <laughs> the sure other, they did <laughs> the other thing was uh you know who were the essential workers the essential workers for me were the farm farmers and the farm workers who didn't have a day off they still had to go in and, and work on the field so so you know i've literally sought out uh, urban farmers in sandig and there's so many of them doing such tremendous amounts of work and so i would get their produce make make my indianized version of whatever uh, greens they gave me um and and feed feed them the food because that was my give back that's all i could do yeah beautiful so, beautiful but i think all of us have done that all of us have done something or the other where you're looking more towards your neighbors rather than looking at are you left or are you right and i hate you because you're either right right i <laughs> i was going to go in the food but yes absolutely <laughs> in fact i have a neighbor who we're we could not be more opposed politically in terms of you know but our values are the same and mm-hmm. i love to bring them cookies mm-hmm. <laughs> because food is the way to soften the heart and get us to see each other eye to eye right yeah and so um uh, i'll thing. just I'll just add to that, uh, you know, Anthony Bourdain's talked about it, uh, yeah. that if you, if you place a bowl of food between two people on a table, then you can start a conversation. Yeah. Um, most, I work in cancer diagnostics. Most of our deals are done over dinners. Mm. And what does that mean? That, that you sit across and you're actually saying, I am willing to sit across this. We are using food as an excuse, but we can talk about that food. We can talk about that food in terms of yes, this reminds me of home, or oh, it is so shitty, I don't want to eat it. Regardless, you know, it's it's a conversation that we can have. Um, but if you are not even at the table, what are you negotiating? Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. What is the conversation you're having when you're speaking into the void? And the void is the interwebs. Us, you know, putting out things on Twitter and thinking we are awesome. <laughs> it really, really tells you how far down the rabbit hole we've gone where we think shouting into the void matters. Yeah. I wanted to say, well, actually, I would like to request something. Mm -hmm. I would like you to put all those urban farmers that you found and the research you did. Do you have a Mm -hmm. list on your website? So Um, I can... Because I would love to see that list. We live in San Diego and I would love to support those farmers. Well, the TEDx talk is about uh, this community uh, farm in City Heights. Mm. Um, it's called New Roots Community Farm, run by immigrants, migrants, and refugees. It's a hundred percent community organized initiative. Uh, the The city did help them get to that level, but in order for them to negotiate this little plot of land where they grow vegetables from their part of the world, whether it's Chad, Senegal, uh, Zambia, uh, Zimbabwe, Congo including uh, Honduras, Vietnam, and Mexico. It's, it's a paradise. People mm. don't know about it. Whenever I talk about it, everybody's like, seriously, City Heights? I mean, that's a food desert. Yes, it is. 
And that's the reason why they needed to grow their own food when right. we, we yeah. resettled them. I mean, San Diego is great as a place that welcomes immigrants and refugees. We, we have, I mean, the whole uh, uh, Southern California region is, has welcomed uh, Vietnamese uh, refugees during the war, helped them resettle. And then that, you know, the process of resettling folks has extended to Central uh, African um, um, refugees and immigrants. And of course, you know, from the border, uh, the, uh, the uh, Mexico and, and uh, other Latin South countries. America, yeah. 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 So, so we've been very good at this, but why don't we know about this? And mm. that's my main question is mm-hmm. what, are you, what do you think about when you think about food that you get from the Hillcrest farmer's market? If you're buying some greens, do you know where it came from? Yeah. You, know, you can say, yeah, it came from farmer number, blah, 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 or this farmer is in this stall every time, so I just get his greens. But a lot of these, uh, these greens actually come from New Roots Community Farm. So uh, I, I'll, I'll uh, put a few of the names and the links out there. I'll talk more about it at my TEDx uh, San Diego talk in June. Excellent. Uh, but I'd love for you guys to go take a look and and say hi to the farmers. They are awesome women. That awesome. would be kind of a cool field trip. Sometimes we're known to go out into the field, go to bookstores. Oh, let me know. And, let yeah, me know. That would be kind of a fun little follow-up. Yeah. What made you decide to tell your story on the TEDx stage? Oh, I got on my political high horse about, you know, <laughs> San Diego being the finest, uh, America's finest country. And I was like, well, finest city, sorry. And so, uh, so for me, it was, you know, we talk about, fish tacos, uh, we talk about surf, sand, beach, we talk about beers, uh, we talk about pretty much everything except the fact that we are one of the most welcoming cities for immigrants, migrants, and refugees. We are. When you talk about immigrants, migrants, and refugees, we always talk about the border and Either you mm. say the border has to be shut or the border has to be open. How dare you on either side? And again, we are fighting. Mm. I'm not interested in that argument. Because what I'm interested in is what you're interested in, is to get to know other people. So I wouldn't be living here if I didn't feel welcome. Are you familiar with the Welcoming San Diego Initiative? No, tell me more. I believe it was started in 2019. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just, you know, local organizations put together some initiatives on how we can better welcome immigrants and get to know our immigrants. You know, Mm -hmm. they're their hardships and their successes. And I actually just learned about it yesterday. So fantastic. Yeah, I'm very interested in this and reaching out and getting to know my neighbors, you know, my immigrant neighbors, as well as Mm. the neighbor right next door to me. Right. So Mm -hmm. this is kind of what you're talking about. So yeah, I mean, the the point is also this, uh, and I I don't know if folks realize um, when we do not welcome or we just you know, move past someone mm. because English is not their first language. Just know that these folks have come into a country not knowing that language, but may know more than three or four languages from where they come from, which course, we don't, right. Right. which we yeah. don't, right? So uh, all of my immigrant not... friends speak more than one language. Right. And so let's not get on a high horses about, oh, speak English, don't speak XYZ language. Oh, yeah, no, funny. you know, so it's a question of tolerance. And sometimes tolerance has to be taught. Kindness has to be taught. It absolutely does. And I have a really good story I want to share with you and our listeners. When I was very young, my family and I went to New Mexico to Pueblo Taos. 
Mm-hmm. And we ended up spending Christmas Eve with a family there, an Indian family, mm-hmm. and they didn't speak English. Mm-hmm. And we didn't speak their language. And mm-hmm. I remember my mom and this woman were in the kitchen talking to each other. Mm-hmm. And mom was speaking English and this other woman was speaking her native native tongue. And mm-hmm. they were making tortillas and they were laughing. Mm. And like there was a lot of hand gestures and like they were talking sure. to each other, but they weren't speaking in words per se. And my father and the man in the house were sitting in the living room doing the same thing. And it really struck me. And we yeah. spent the entire evening there and had this lovely meal with them, which was yeah. very foreign to us because, uh-huh. you know, Christmas dinner was a goose or a turkey. Yeah. And we had yeah. beans and tortillas and, you know, different rice dishes. Oh, how cool. Yeah. No, I, I think that pretty much, you know, we, we talk about uh, our pets understanding our language. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I always go back to my dog and I'll speak to her <laughs> in Hindi. I'll speak to her in Bengali and English. And she understands everything. So I'm like, hey, look at my dog. My dog can speak three <laughs> languages, you know. Uh, it, but that's not true at all. I think what the what the animal does is looks at your reaction and reacts accordingly. Of if course. they want to, being temperamental, they may or may not. But uh, <laughs> but I feel most of what we do as humans are our communications. Uh, communication goes through our bodies. It's body language rather than the language we use. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was in graduate school um, in uh, Stony Brook, uh, I was in a group uh, that had uh, everybody from that group was from mainland China, and I was the only token Indian. And um, so what they would do is uh, their parents would come and stay with them for months. And most of the time, the parents couldn't speak English. So they would come and they would make these amazing dumplings. And uh, and so I've made friends with all the Chinese uh, uh, mothers and grandmothers because, you know, you always gravitate towards food. And so they, we would sit in, in the kitchen and she would show me how to, how to, you know, fold the dumplings. Not knowing a lick of English, me not knowing anything of mm. Mandarin. And so, yeah, so I totally agree with you. You don't need to have a language if the language is that of communication and communication can happen in multiple different ways. Absolutely. Let's talk about this feeling, this sense of home. So first of all, the first two chapters and the last chapter of your book gave me this feeling of longing. I found myself crying as I read, and but this overwhelming feeling of emotion, like I felt this feeling of missing something precious, but mm-hmm. also enjoying how you were making, bringing that preciousness into your current life. I guess I felt that mm-hmm. for you, but also mm-hmm. for me, because we add our own understanding and experiences to anything we read, right? And I've been in San Diego for 34 years. This is definitely mm-hmm. home. Chad mm-hmm. and I have owned our home. And yet I still call the Pacific Northwest where I grew up home. And when I mm-hmm. visit there, I tell people I'm going home. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I marvel at these words as they leave my mouth. Like, why do I call it home? But yet we cling to our roots with this fierceness. And you yeah. talk a lot about that in your book with Baba and what, you know, Desh is what is now known as Bangladesh and to you, yeah. Desh is India. Talk more about this. Yeah. No, you pretty much said it. Um, I, you know, when people talk about the story of, you know, what does home mean to you? Um, you're always talking about what, where you felt comfortable. Mm where you felt you could be you and celebrate yourself. Do you think it's also about where you felt loved? Yeah. Well, not necessarily, though. Yeah. Because I, I wanted to write a, uh, about my childhood, which I think was uh, very happy. 
very uneventful in terms of trauma. <laughs> but uh, if you went and asked my sister the same question, she she'll go on a rant about how awful some stupid shit happened, you know. I, which we we, we had the same childhood, right. we had the same right. childhood. So I don't know if that would be the case, but yeah, it would be about love. It would be about belonging. You felt mm. you belonged, right. meaning you were part of that tribe, right? If it's a tribe of five little girls hanging out and you know racing down the street on skateboards or whatever they do, uh, that's where they belonged. So. Um, and what I always say is when we talk about immigrants, we are also talking about people who may not be immigrants, who may have been living in that country for generations, but have moved from one city to the next. And that too is, is a journey that we don't talk about. Mm-hmm. Because you come into San Diego, it's a beautiful place. Uh, why would you not love it? But you will always go back to back home this happened. Because that, mm-hmm. that, that, that's where your roots are. Now, if you look at it from from the uh, belonging perspective, your initial memories in your brain are formed in your childhood. That is what is hardwired into you. The way you react, the way you uh, act, the way you express joy, sorrow is all defined by how you were brought up, you know, nurture versus nature. How you were brought, of course, your nature will, will come out, but what was your family's reaction? Like I said, in my book, um, we were not a demonstrative family, um, mm-hmm. but the de- demonstration was through food. Yeah. Like you had to eat uh, and you had to feed your family to show how much you love them. And we had to eat to show how much we appreciated that. Mm. But I am a very <laughs> affectionate person. People get mad at me because I'm, I'm a hugger. So for, for um, <laughs> you know, it, during the pandemic, it was fucking hell. Yeah. It was hell. Like um, my you, dog you said- was like, get away from me. <laughs> You said, I think you hadn't hugged anyone for, I think it was 214 days. Is that right? No, 214 days was my ex-husband. That was 200. This was 68 weeks. Okay. Almost 68 over a year. One person's hell is another person's heaven. That's that's true. Yeah, I have friends who are so happy they don't have to hug me anymore. That was going to be one of my questions for you, Madhushri. It's like, Mm. you know, you did such a good job of describing the love language in your family and like you would get home and there was this one scene where you were coming home and something was happening I think there were riots happening during I forget what year it was 80 yeah mm-hmm. 84 and 80 I was gonna say 84 mm-hmm. and your mom that was the look on her face that showed mm-hmm. she was so relieved that you were home but mm-hmm. she didn't show love with hugging you were in a hugging family and mm-hmm. to me that I was like wow and then I was going to ask you do are you a hugger now and do you think that's a result of <laughs> So that's why I'm saying, you know, when you're talking about, uh, how, you know, what you consider home, mm-hmm. how you, how do you, how do you interact and what you do, you may not, you may not have been taught hugging, but if that's in your nature, it's going to come out. It. Yeah, it's going to come out. So, yeah. so yeah, my <laughs> friends who are my family, we, we've turned that family now. Um, they know, they know if I, if they come home, they know that they will be sent back with leftovers that'll feed them for three or four days. They know they will be hugged so much that, um, you know, we have to listen to each other's hearts. I, do you know the, 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 the scientific, well, I think it's scientific, uh, <laughs> principle behind hugging. And so when you're hugging, your heart is touching the other person's heart and your heart has a, has a heartbeat and it vibrates at a, at a certain frequency. 
right? Okay. So when I'm hugging you, I am actually telling you how much uh, I want to be connected to you. Mm. So how do you connect? The frequency of heartbeats actually start matching. Wow. This, there was an NPR KPBS program on that. We should go dig that up. We should. Chad's like, yeah. I don't know if I believe this. I can see the look I, I, on his face. Well, no, I think this is this, because I do have some experience with the, uh, with the tuning of instruments and mm. the Western standard being uh, four, A440, mm -hmm. right, is the frequency mm -hmm. at which mm -hmm. everything is tuned to. Yeah. Uh, so there's like a subset of wing nuts online that, <laughs> that want Great that want to <laughs> change the uh, Western tuning standard to like a fourth A432. <laughs> okay. And then that, the, because th that's the, the frequency that the human heart resonates at. Or, oh, is that right? So there's like a whole thing behind that. that I think... We should check this out because I, I think it'll be a <laughs> I great science more. experiment. Uh, yeah. So I'm like, I keep hugging. I don't mind. I'll keep I'm not hugging. saying don't hug. You just call me a wingnut, no. sir. You just call me a wingnut. No, I'm saying the people who are arguing. <laughs> totally did. The people who are arguing for the tuning, the the taking centuries of of musical theory and and chucking it in the bin by right. by changing everything to like. I mean, we did we did chuck slavery in the bin. That's true. Ah, there are point. things worth being chucked in the bin. I don't know if music. This theories. is not one of them. Mm. <laughs> But it can still adapt because that's what we do as humans as we adapt. Well, that's the beautiful thing about electronic instruments, right? Is you can just mm -hmm. hit a button a couple times and boom, you're in 432, you're that's in 431, true. you're in mm -hmm. whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's easy enough. But tuning yeah. a saxophone is polyrhythms. starter. It makes me think of polyrhythms yes. too. Yes, yes. So yeah, so we could be vibrating at a different level. But if we are hugging, we are actually exchanging that. So that's when mm -hmm. you resonate. It's a, it's a question of resonance. Mm. So that's my theory and I'm sticking to it. And <laughs> I, my middle name is Wingnut. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Oh, I won't let him forget that. You don't want to actually change the, the resonance <laughs> of the music. But I, you're right. Like when you touch mm -hmm. someone, you exchange energy. I mean, what yes. was it? Uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson did that experiment where when you shake someone else's hand, one of you is taking your DNA on and transmitting it onto the other person. But mm -hmm. it's interesting. It goes from one to the other, not necessarily both. But, you know, that's a whole nother podcast. Well, yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> well, it all might depend on the on, you know, what what the energy is. One is an energy suck. The other one's not. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, OK. OK. <laughs> This is awesome. Here's one thing I'd like to say, though. I, I want to talk about food because there's okay. so much beautiful, so many beautiful descriptions of food mm -hmm. and the way you describe spices and cooking, even just the cooking process and, and how you even put like black sesame seeds on your your gluten-free naan. And mm -hmm. I appreciated the recipes. And in fact, mm -hmm. I very much encourage you to write a cookbook. I'm in. Okay. I'm all in on a complete. Yes, or, or I mean, we're a blog. You might already have that. <laughs> no, it's it's all there on my IG and TikTok. Uh, that's all I do is cook and put it out there. It's so. wonderful. Well, and Chad and I love. Mm -hmm. That is our love language. You know, mm -hmm. we love to cook for people and entertain people. And so, when can we have you for dinner? I want to cook for you. You tell me when. I'll be we there. I can start walking right now. Awesome. Well, <laughs> hey, we'll even pick you up. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to walk. <laughs> Although it's probably not that far. When we were in Italy, we went to Venice in the mm -hmm. fall. And mm -hmm. you know where we wanted to eat the whole time we were there? Mm -hmm. Just take a guess. Tell me. Indian food. 
there we found this amazing Indian food restaurant. People are like, "You're in Venice eating Indian food," and we're all, "Fuck yeah!" It was so good. Was I'm just gonna Indian? say, no, 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 no. What? what was it? Bangladeshi or Indian? You know, I, I I wanted to check on that because I don't know. But it was there is a huge influx of Bangladeshi workers who go there mm. into Italy, and there's a huge there's a huge population, and they're, they're thriving. Of course, they're thriving there. Uh, but but a lot of uh, f- so the West cannot distinguish between Pakistan, India, and Bangladesh and our foods. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, the mishmash of that food is what is represented as Indian food, whereas yes. they're right. clearly distinct, all having their wonderful qualities. For example, Pakistan. Um, uh, what was the name of it? Rabia. Rabia just wrote this book. Um, I will remember this book right now, but give me one second on that. But uh, uh, this book is about love language being food and um and how you eat a lot uh because that's what your parents feed you you're feeding you love and so you become fat so is fat the fat equals to love or not mm. for bangladeshi uh food uh, chitrita banerjee is a memoirist um and a food anthropologist who's written a lot about you know the food that that's in bangladesh and the food that has traveled to india and the subtle differences in bengali food so um, I would I would encourage you to find out if this is a Bangladeshi restaurant uh, looking at um, representing Indian food. Well, I will say the reviews say that it's it's called Ital India, Ooh, and okay. the reviews say it's the best halal food. I'm I'm gonna find out. I want to okay. know more about you know I I understand that Southern Indian food is oh, mainly vegetarian. I'm sorry. And- I'm sorry I had to interrupt you. Uh, yeah. The name of Rabia Chaudhry's book is Fatty Fatty Boom Boom, and she's an amazing person. Fatty so everybody- Fatty Boom Boom? Uh-huh. That's the best title ever. I know. She's an amazing writer, <laughs> fantastic uh, uh, defender of justice. She's a lawyer, and she's the lawyer who got um, Adnan Saeed freed. So oh, go wow. get her book. I will definitely go get her book. Thank you. Yeah, Sorry, we love Indian food. I mean, we love mm-hmm. Indian food. And of course, what we know as Westerners, yeah. you know, and we're very fascinated in the idea of, you know, how colonialism has affected Indian food, especially for mm-hmm. us Westerners. Like tikka mm-hmm. masala was yeah. really, as far as I know. Well, it depends on the origin story, you believe, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So True. you tell us, Madhushri. So, so chicken tikka masala is not an Indian concoction. Um, it is a... Based on on my research, it it started out somewhere in, on a dark and stormy night <laughs> in uh, Scotland, uh, where a truck because driver. There are came no in. other nights like no, <laughs> exactly. other no it's not. And it's Scotland. Every night is dark and stormy. Exactly. So um, <laughs> the Scots are going to come attack me after this. But <laughs> anyway, so this uh, trucker came in to this restaurant and asked for something spicy uh, that uh, that you know. Uh, they could eat because it was cold and so the the chef there went and zhuzhed up some food which was you know leftover chicken leftover tandoori chicken that they then put in a sauce um likely and i've read a lot about this uh, likely this happened um in a restaurant run by bangladeshi chefs and cooks and so really us uh, Indians, we, we are good at claiming everything is ours. I mean, we claim Kamala Harris was ours. <laughs> <you> know, <so. laughs> like, oh my God, look at her. 
you know, she's a, she's an aunt. No, she's not. Um, so, uh, no, she's not. Are you gatekeeping? <laughs> I was like, um, she didn't identify with that. She just did when she wanted the votes, but okay. Uh, that's a separate discussion. Totally. So. I want to get into that one with you too. <laughs> Go so, on. so, so chicken tikka masala started that way. Then, you know, the line started forming. And so then it became something like, oh, that that's yeah. almost a, a British uh, dish now, right? It, it's, it's like a national dish. Yeah. Um, the other story uh, that there is, is Dili Darbar, which is one of the older Mughlai foods. So, so times when the Mughals came in and the Islam came in uh, right around that time um, that they made this dish in this restaurant called Dili Darbar, which is a landmark restaurant. You can believe either or, it doesn't really matter. Likely it happened in a Bangladeshi uh, uh, kitchen in Scotland, is my theory. Hmm. Interesting. Does that make it awful? No, it's a wonderful dish. Well, that's Eat the it. thing. Yeah, there's a lot of foods that came directly out of, you know, uh, slavery, uh, yeah. colonialism in so many different, you know, parts of the world where people had, to, like you were talking about the bunny chow, mm -hmm. you know, people weren't allowed to go into restaurants, but they had to eat. So they're given food that they can take on the go and they don't need silverware. And it's like, yeah, yeah. now we have this amazing food that is a direct result of racism, right? We, yeah. So and also, also, if you're really looking at it, when we talk about Indian food and Indian food is so spicy, I want folks to also understand, take a step back, uh, chilies didn't <laughs> used to grow in India. Mm. We had other things by which we spiced up our food, but we didn't really spice it up as much as we did once the colonizers, so this is the Portuguese, brought in chilies. Um, you know, Mexican, Lat Latino food, uh, adding in cumin, was mm -hmm. came in from our spice, mm -hmm. spice racks, right? Yeah. Um, more importantly, and that this is what I've talked about in the book, because I went down the, the masala chai rabbit hole which is the reason why I put it on the cover too, is uh, tea is not Indian. So yeah. if it is yeah. an Indian, what the heck is it? And it's actually a direct result of, you know, our colonizers, which yeah. is, it was in China. And then it had, then because of the opium wars, because of the political situation, uh, the, the British Raj then said, mm. okay, well, what the heck do we do? Let's grow it in one of our colonies that has similar weather, like, China, and it ended up being near Darjeeling and Assam. And so those tea estates still exist. I loved that section learning about tea because I'm a huge tea drinker. I don't drink yeah. coffee. I know you drink coffee and you drink it how I used to. No sugar, yeah. cream, yeah. got yeah. the acid. But I'm a huge <laughs> tea drinker. Uh -huh. And I, I want to talk about your cover, though. So for yeah. our listeners, read this book, the, learning about how tea has been a huge... Um, just read the book, but colonization and like control, controlling other humans, right? And then like tea had such a huge part of that all over the world. But there's this, the cover is beautiful. And I know that you took this photograph, or am I right about that? Yeah. It's gorgeous. You're a photographer because there's several photos and I believe you took all of them. Yes, I did. Except for my parents because I wasn't born then. Well, that's um, a good point. <laughs> Which, by the way, they're so adorable. I was like, oh my God, I love cute? them so much. I, I literally, I mean, I, I'm so weird. I, when people come back and say, oh, I love the cover, I, I move the picture to my, to my parents' picture. I'm saying, go say hi to them. You know, go I say do. hi to my parents. <laughs> I, you know, I did it a couple of times. Once I discovered that the photograph was there during yeah. the reading of the book, every mm. once in a while, I would just flip to the back and look at their faces because yeah. your dad has such a kindness and a softness and this, like, I want to say that he was a rascal. 
Oh, he was. His name, <laughs> his name was uh, uh, Hashi. I'm mm. teaching you another Bengali word. Hashi means laughter. So mm. my dad, we knew, we, like he would come into the room and you could see the twinkle in his eye and you knew some stupid dad joke was coming out of his yeah. mouth <laughs> right now, you know? Awesome. Uh, dad so jokes I, are I, universal. Yeah, I right? know. And uh, yeah, so people ask about, you know, why I keep talking about them because I feel I, I um, chose not to have children. Uh, because I feel there are many different ways the information that I have can be passed down to other generations and genetic information passed down is not what I'm interested in. Mm. However, um, I also want everybody to know about my parents because they were very cool people. Oh, and, and your mom is just like, she just looks so blissful and peaceful. Is this their wedding photo? No, this was, I think, four months after that or okay. something. And they had to go take, because uh, we used to make fun of them. There aren't any wedding pictures. We're like, mm. are you really married? And so they <laughs> they pull this out. They pull this out and say, look, look, we went to a studio and got this picture taken. I'm like, you look sad. Like <laughs> Now they don't miserable. look sad to me. No, we used to make fun of them, of course. Oh, right, right, right. <laughs> it was beautiful. But I'm going to take you back to the cover. I'm not going to let mm -hmm. you completely. Okay. It's, so, yeah. It's so, beautiful. Yeah, tell us about it. So um, when I was writing this book, um, a lot of the essays were written. Some of them were published. Um, and a lot of them used my photographs. Um, but um, when University of Iowa Press came in, Everybody scared me silly, saying, "Ah, oh, they will, uh, they will, you know, force you to use a particular mm -hmm. cover. They'll mm -hmm. make do this is your first book. Don't argue with them. <laughs> and then there'll be somebody else saying it's your first book. You should argue with them. So it was getting a little crazy. Um, <laughs> whereas University of Iowa Press is one of the best groups that I've ever worked with, and I, I work with other people all the time. But this was just such a professional group." who understood that I wanted to write it in the language I did in a braided narrative essay form where I'm putting in my life with other chefs and cooks and writers. Um, and they championed it. They supported what I'm doing. And when I showed these pictures, of course, I, I sent them 30 pictures of which we had to narrow it down to nine or 10. And uh, But the negotiation there was very straightforward. You know, they liked it. They took it. I met them because all this happened during the pandemic. So I wasn't really meeting them in person. So um, I, I was a featured speaker at uh, the University of Iowa in October. So I went and met my editors and my book cover designer uh, for the first time. This is after the book had been out for months. And so I was talking to the designer. I said, what, what made you choose this? She said, you have an eye, eye for composition. I didn't have to change anything. Why wouldn't <laughs> I use a picture that's already fine enough. I mean, what I really liked that they did was putting the mandala uh, images on it because it really ties into what I'm trying to say, which is in a narrative braided memoir uh, section, you always, you're always touching stone. You know, you're always coming back to what what is it that matters to you? When you're really talking about food, what are you really talking about? Are mm. you talking about a recipe or are you talking about the history behind it? Are you talking about how you're feeling about that food or did you learn something new and you want to employ that? Mm. So, yeah, that's my story of the cover. Well, it definitely draws me in. It, initially, I loved the cover even before I knew anything about it. It's like this, this deep red, beautiful, is that a sari or? So uh, the sari uh, fabric is actually from uh, this very cool Indian uh, uh, group run by two sisters who are, who are just awesome to, to watch online. 
the name of the company is Suta, S-U-T-A mm. dot I-N. So that's their website. And um, what they've done is, and they were corporate kids, and then they said, no, fuck it, we don't want to do that. We want to get back to our roots. And in India, they they actually work with the weavers, with the textile uh, people and the print people and come up with these saris that are very affordable, but it really takes all the uh, proceeds and works towards keeping this industry going, the textile industry for saris going. And I love that. I love that about, this is what I mean by the next generation. <laughs> They're doing such cool things. Like, you know, I'm, I'm the Desi auntie who's like clinging on to this. So I wanted <laughs> to put that in. I did get a question when I was um, in, uh, at my talk uh, at Center for Fiction in April of last year, uh, uh, a writer friend of mine asked this question, which is very pertinent. And she said, you know, you keep saying you don't want to talk about the conventional ways that people perceive Indians as or South Asians as. Then why would you put the image of a cup and, you know, a fabric next to it? And that's a great question because <laughs> aesthetically it looks beautiful, right? Yeah. Aesthetically it looks lovely. But Everything that I do, I've realized I do is very subversive because what I wanted to do is when you look at this, you feel calm, you feel like, oh, this is a lovely book about food. And then you open it and bam, social justice hits you in the face. That's mm. what I wanted. That's nice. what I wanted. So, uh, so while I wasn't planning it, apparently I was, at least my subconscious was. You say in the acknowledgments that this book was a decade in the making, and yet I know from the reading that you wrote a lot of this during the pandemic. Was this the book you intended to write, init write initially, or do you think that it was shaped by the solitude you experienced in during the pandemic? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So uh, the book proposal that went to Nina uh, Mukherjee first, now the food story editor of uh, University of Iowa Press, was very different from what this book turned out to be because mm. by the time they said yes, I said yes. We started, you know, collating how this uh, shaping this book. The pandemic happened, and so it just didn't make sense to keep writing the way I was because in that case it was in the beginning it was a narrative food narrative memoir, really talking about um, uh, chefs and cooks who are not as celebrated. Right. We mm. have we have uh, we we celebrate pomp. We celebrate TV. We celebrate the celebrity chefs. And I wanted to talk about people that we don't talk about. And th this is what I wanted to write about. But then the pandemic happened. So about 30 percent, 35 percent of the book was actually uh, scrapped. And I rewrote it because it really the pandemic, as you said, it, it gave me pause enough to say, what am I doing with my life? And does this even matter? I mean, at the end of the day, if you don't read the book, then nothing matters. But if you read the book, <laughs> if, if you read the book, then then yes, then you you find some things to identify with. You find some things you learned, and you may find some things that are wrong that you may want to correct. And you can always uh, reach me and and yell at me for my wrong research. But uh, given that you know, copy editors and and uh, content editors at Iowa have gone through so carefully. I highly doubt you'll find that. But bottom line is that that's the way I felt I had to put the story out there because the end of the uh, chapter 10, the last chapter was pretty much us waiting because 
we hadn't gotten out of the pandemic. I mean, I still don't think we've gotten out of the pandemic, but that's my personal opinion. Uh, I'm with you, uh, yeah. <laughs> and the fact that we wander around without masks is just, uh, it's horrifying. Confounding. It's horrifying <laughs> to me. It's, yeah. It just is. But then am I wandering around with without masks because I have had five shots? Yeah, of course I am. And th- that's when that's where you you try to, you know, justify what you're doing, but we're all doing it. And mm-hmm. so so the last I think the last chapter basically says and we wait. I think that's what it says. It is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and we wait. Or, but till then I wait. Yeah. I, I was going to say I thought it was I wait, but Yeah, I wait. Um you talk a lot about rituals and habits in this book. Mm-hmm. Can you talk to us more about the importance of rituals and changing habits and and how how they affect how we see our lives and our Mm -hmm. joy? Yeah. So I will say every creative person is is ritualistic. Mm. Every science person is ritualistic. Every sports watching fan is ritualistic. You hear that a lot. Oh, I wore my favorite sweatshirt because so-and-so was playing against so-and-so uh you hear you know i I was reading this on twitter about game rituals where you know the dad had to sit on the floor because he was sitting on the floor when the boston Sox did something whatever i'm I'm not a i'm not that that great in in sports as you can see um so but but for science folks I, I don't have you have you been in a, a research lab or a science lab like a like a university lab have you have you seen the lab I've seen them on television does that okay. count <laughs> all right let me uh, no it doesn't because te- <laughs> t- television makes it glamorous the way the way we used to it so you're really pushed against different uh, around a table ish space where you pipette you work you look count colonies on on um, cells or whatever else you do right um, and so every week you turn, you ha- you put in uh, a bench paper so any spills don't go into the uh, table, even though the table shouldn't absorb anything. But, you know, so these are all uh, safety precautions that you do. So you put that and then you throw it away and again, put another one just so you're not contaminating the space. It's very important that you don't contaminate your experiments, right? And so for that, you, used to, you have to use tape, uh, uh, tape to tape it, but it shouldn't be taped so tight that you can't take the uh, paper out. This is a long way of saying, when I was in lab at Hopkins, my I was a postdoc there and my undergraduate students would stand around me watching me put my paper on top because I had to have three strips on one side, uh, two strips on the other, and one each on each side. And if it wasn't straight, I would have to start over again. And mm. so is it is it ritualistic? Is it habit? Is it superstition? It's a combination of is all of that. Yeah, is it OCD? Um, you know, what is it? So, so you know, even in science, you would try to do that because, oh, my experiment worked. I'm going to try it again because it's going to work again, you know? It um, seems important in science, though. I, I get that. Like, if you have a ritual in that way, then you know you're not going to make a mistake. You have yeah, to do so it Yeah, so that is basically, yeah, that's called, um, if you're moving into product development, it's called uh, reproducibility or inter inter um, uh, operator reproducibility, meaning if I ran the experiment or you ran the experiment, it should, it should be the same. 
Um, but we can go down the product development workflow some other time. Uh, <laughs> but that's science, you know. So we all have our own rituals about you know what works and what doesn't work. Now, the biggest theory that has been debunked over and over again, but it's wonderful to, to say it is is the science of habit, and it is that twenty one in twenty one days you can change the habit. And what that means is, uh, in about three weeks, you can. Stop eating a cookie at 3 p.m. if you get up and go stand next to your coworker or go rub your dog's head, right? So every time at 3 o'clock, if you want to eat a cookie, don't eat the cookie, drink a glass of water, go pet your dog. Do a different you know? habit, yeah, yeah, a different ritual. And so, so you're replacing one for the other. Not happening. The cookie is the only damn thing I have in my life. No, exactly. come on now. <laughs> exactly. But the thing is, but, but if that theory were true, which a lot of us think it's true, right? Mm. Um, then we should not have been able to get into the lockdown as fast as we did. Right, right. Now, was, was the universe helping us as in pretty much shutting down everything? Yes. Fear helped us form this habit really quickly. Yeah. So, so I, I'm fascinated by rituals. I'm fascinated by what we call OCD, which is not really OCD, because I think we are disrespecting people who are suffering from that uh, when we say that. Yeah, I yeah. think these are, uh, these are just habits that we lean on as, as crutches, because if you haven't realized yet, <laughs> nothing in our life is in control. Mm -hmm. We don't have anything in our control. And the pandemic was a great example of how much we was, weren't in control. And I think that people don't give themselves enough credit. I mean, humans are adaptable. I mean, that's mm -hmm. how we survive. Yeah. Because there's always going to be things thrown at us that we don't expect. Mm -hmm. And we can't control, as you point out in your book. You know, whether we're forced to leave our country or live under a dictator or shut down mm -hmm. and hide away due to a pandemic, we find joy and hope and in small gardens and poetry absolutely. and memories. Yeah. You, you said it so much better. Yes, absolutely. Well, three o'clock cookies. And three o'clock cookies, because Chad actually <laughs> does that. That was a very astute of you. We quit drinking yeah. this year. Chad and I gave up alcohol. I know. Yeah. I'm really going to miss the it? whiskey. You know, we love it. Mm. We committed mm. for one year, you know, mm. to um, do something different and pay attention mm. to our bodies and mm. pay attention to what's happening. Because I do think that there's a shift for me mm. in business, mm -hmm. in life, in conversations. And I want to be uber aware mm. of what people are doing and saying and what I'm supposed mm. to be doing to help, right? Mm. To help move things forward in a positive way. Sure. And so giving up alcohol, but Chad is not going to give up cookies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I gave up alcohol. Well, I, we, I never drank till I came to this country. Then this country corrupted me. Mm, and so we're good I at that. Had to, yeah. I, <laughs> so I started, you know, I, uh, so I started when I was 22, 23. And then I got married and then I started getting um, allergic reactions or hives. And I, for the life of me, didn't know what it was. Likely it was my ex, but I didn't realize that. But uh, <laughs> so, I bet it was. So I, I didn't know what it was. I gave up coffee and I gave up uh, alcohol. Mm. And to tell you the truth, I did not miss alcohol. I missed coffee like crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And 10 years later, when the, when I filed for divorce, I'm like, fuck it. I'm, I'm drinking again. I'm drinking everything. <laughs> Where's the whiskey? <laughs> I know. And then um, that and, and then I, you know, for, for my writing workshop that I really love uh, in Italy, they were like, you're coming to Italy and you're drinking Darjeeling tea. Like, what the heck is wrong with you? So, <laughs> so that's when I started coffee again and nothing happened. So which meant, uh, you know, 
by elimination of, in this case, my ex, uh, I was fine. You, it really was the ex. And if you read the book, <laughs> you'll know why. I want to talk about, we're running out of time, and I have so many things I wanted to ask you. And of course, we just don't have the time. But maybe we'll have you back again. Yeah. In the very beginning of your book, in the author's note, you did something that made me yell out loud, yes, this idea that foreign words must be italicized. Mm -hmm. And you explain, well, those words aren't foreign to me. Why should I italicize something that's not foreign to me? Can you mm -hmm. talk more about that? Um, I actually would uh, like for all of us, especially your listeners, to try to question uh, themselves when they say something is foreign. Mm. Because um, that has a connotation that I don't think we have been very introspective about. So I've always used um, different languages in my writing. I've never italicized them. And because if you really think about it, and any listener who's from India can vouch for this, uh, in schools and colleges, we speak a, a mixture of multiple languages. And so, you, you know, the, the, we even call it Hinglish, where you have, you know, words of Hindi like Spanglish, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mishmashed into English. And mm -hmm. even the English-isms are either very British or very Indian because that's where we come from. So so we've always done this. So for me, this wasn't foreign. By foreign, my opinion is by foreign, we mean, okay, I'm not familiar with this, mm -hmm. so it cannot be part of my repertoire. I've also got comments like, well, it's not part of the Oxford Dictionary, therefore. I say fuck dictionaries. I also say fuck <laughs> writing programs where they say uh, show, don't tell. Viet Tan Nguyen has talked about this, that we are speaking, we are writing in our colonizers' languages, but we have lived experiences of folklore, uh, myth, as well as comic books, where you're talking about a story within a story. You're talking about showing and telling. And sometimes you're telling and not showing. Sometimes you're showing, not telling. We, we break all these rules. So the writing workshop construct has been a very white Iowa workshop concept. So, mm. so mm. how does my story fit into that? It does not. It does not. So you have to ask yourself when you say something is foreign, what do you mean by that? Mm. And my question here was when I do put this in, can I... Put it in such that a person who's never heard this word will be able to follow this, or is this person going to stop and say, oops, no, I can't do it because I don't even know what they're saying. And I don't think that happened. I think everybody was able to, and this is not just one language that I use. I, I think I've used three or four languages in this book besides English. So that's how we speak. That's how uh, we stick to it. I was at the Jaipur lit festival uh, in January, we had this question, this is my first Indian audience, and we were talking about this, and you could see folks cheering, because it, it's finally somebody, <laughs> you know, they, he's like, oh, yes, you said it, you said it, this is exactly what we feel, because that that's such a true feeling, and sometimes it's it's nice to be heard. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I'd love the here, fact here. that you published it in University of Iowa Press. Totally. I know! Yeah, I know. They Brilliant. love it. But they, they are so sweet. They love it, though. <laughs> I, that makes me happy. There's hope. There's hope. Ah, for sure. I can remember being in college. I'm, I'm a writer and mm -hmm. I minored in English and being told I couldn't use big words or concepts because people wouldn't understand them. And I thought to myself, 
that is ridiculous. Like seriously, mm-hmm. you don't if you don't know a word, you look it up. You don't just quit mm-hmm. reading because you can't. So the point is so good. It's so on, right on, right on. You know, but I would put the, put a caveat to this. Some folks feel like they need to italicize it, and I feel like it's a personal choice. Mm. Um, some people feel like that that's the only way the gravitas will be, or like if it's a whole sentence. That's or does it make it special? Or, right. Yeah, but you know. It is what it is. I had promised myself I won't write about, you know, turmeric and jasmine and cumin. And I wrote about all of that. So, you know, <laughs> wait, wait, why didn't you want to write about them? <laughs> because when I came to this country, there was this exoticization of South Asian foods and South Asian lives that the, the, the woman was gorgeous, but very troubled with long hair and huge eyes waiting for her knight in shining armor. And there was this white guy who rescued her. And mm. those were the stories that I was being exposed to when I came in. I was reading South Asian literature primarily to uh, quell my, my uh, homesickness. And so I'm like, but this is not the story I want to l- hear. Then came, you know, writing from Arundhati Roy, which just pretty much blew every rule away. Then came Jhumpa Lahiri, who wrote very poet- poetic and uh, lyrical, but it was very specific about a particular community that moved to the U.S. So there were many different ways of writing this, but I was done looking at covers that showed, you know, a, a very graceful dancing pose of a woman uh, for no reason, because that's mm. not how we operate. Yeah. Have you always wanted to be a writer? Was that something? Because, I mean, you became a scientist, but you're also this incredibly creative writer. Yeah. Um, so I wrote my first really awful poem when I was eight and got published. And <laughs> ah, it was Wait, horrible. it was published when you were eight? Yeah, because there was a children's section in the, what was the uh, newspaper? Uh, the Pioneer in, in Lucknow, India. And my mother bought 10 copies of it and she pretty much mailed it to all her people. Oh, and I'm like, oh, look at that. This is so amazing. I'm so awesome. Um, and so, oh, mom. I know, right? Beautiful. Uh, oh, you'd have loved her. She was so cool. So uh, I do love her. <laughs> you brought her to life. Thank you. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so I, I was writing, but then, you know, it, it's a question of when you're in a developing country, the only way the next generation can do better is if they leave for America. Right. Mm. And if you're good in science, you don't do anything else. That is, that is your aim. That's your goal. So when I came to the U.S. for my Ph.D., I stopped writing because I needed to focus to get my Ph.D. and get the hell out. Yeah. I started writing fiction. I mean, a lot of people say, you know, that this is the, the writing is so descriptive. It's because of my training in fiction. I came here, then I trained a lot with a lot of different writers. Danny Shapiro uh, is one of my mentors. Uh, she's blurbed this book for which I'm really grateful for. But what she has said is uh, what I, how I lead my life, but I also uh, write in that sense of you have to notice what you notice, right? I want to so, read her endorsement for you. Can I, can I read that real quick? Go ahead. Kabar crackles with energy and passion. This book engages the reader on many levels. It awakens the senses, heightens awareness of racial and gender disparity, and perhaps above all is a powerful love story between its author and her family and country of origin. Ghosh has written a book that it educates as it entertains, which is no easy feat. I am enriched for having read it. Danny Shapiro. Isn't she awesome? That is such a wonderful endorsement. And when I read that, I was Thank like, you. oh, yeah, it gave me tingles. I was like, Aww. absolutely. She's so, awesome. 
So you started writing fiction. And at what point did you know you would write your story? Yeah, so I was writing fiction because I was too scared to write nonfiction. Mm. Um, I was writing fiction because my my paycheck job was stressful. So I didn't want to talk about my life. I wanted to talk about uh, things that I could imagine. But then I, w- I realized I was writing my own story over and over again and fictionalizing Fictional, it. Fictionalizing it. Oh, that's great. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, as a writer, you know, uh, you've done it too. You yeah, know? So we all do it. Yeah. You, st- you start out and say, oh, no, it's fiction. Fuck that. You know it's not. <laughs> uh, but then what happened was my, my parents passed away and then my marriage fell apart. And I was in the middle of writing this very complicated uh, novel and I just couldn't write. My brain just was fried. I couldn't write. I didn't know what was happening. So the only way I could make sense was to write about it. So I was literally writing about the 214 days of silence um, for uh, in real time. I was writing in real time. Mm. So as it was happening. Wow. Now, what, what, did, what, what came of that was 700 pages of, Oh my God, maudlin, sad, woe is me, look at me, my <laughs> now ex has become my now ex and how sad am I? Nobody wants that. I'm sorry. I'm mm. sorry. You know, you, but you have not, to write it. You have to write yes, it for you. So, so yeah. then you write it, but, and yeah. that I started that in, in Siren Land in Positano in, in Italy. That's why it's very special to me because Danny and uh, all the teachers there, um, uh, Hannah Tinti, uh, Mike Marin, whose movie just came out. Th- these are the ones who helped me get my nonfiction going. Those are some big and, names, yeah. yeah. And so they they help it going. And of course, uh, Jim Shepard, who's who's the greatest teacher in my opinion. Um, so so they helped me write the nonfiction work. But what was happening, which was very surprising to me, is um, it started getting attention. So there were lots of literary magazines, newspapers, op-ed pieces that the, the editors were very interested in what I had to say. Like you're, you know, doing your own thing in a, in a little hole. You never think that somebody's going to come and, and, and um, want your work and in fact want your work and pay for it. <laughs> so bonus. <laughs> so th- I know. So that's what happened. So that's when people were like, "Well, you you're a nonfiction writer. You just start, have been pretending to be a fiction writer." Mm. So that's that's how I moved into uh, memoir. Um, but I've always been very cautious about writing memoir that's so maudlin or so depressing that the reader does not get a a, a single moment um, to breathe, and every. Every writing uh, piece is also like a musical piece. It's also like, you know, when you write poetry, which is you have breaks. You need the reader to pause. You need the reader to reflect. If you keep giving them data after data point, that doesn't help. If you keep telling them, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened, that means you're just inundating them with emotions that they may not have even realized they had. Sure. So. So, yeah, it, so it's 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 a dance. It's a dance, and so mm-hmm. I feel that the essay form has been very kind to me. But I love the braided essay form. Um, it lets me talk about multiple things, including data as a science person, uh, memoir as as a creative writer, as well as connecting with the reader because the reader needs to understand why this is related. Yeah, yeah. When I was done reading, I thought, you know, it's a it's a combination of analytical writing and introspection weaved in such a way that we take this journey with you and we're there, but yet we learn so much in a very beautiful way. So well done. 
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today, Madhushri. We really appreciate you coming and this, spending the time to share your story with us. This is just fantastic. Thank you for the opportunity. I just so loved hanging out with you too. And we're serious. We're going to invite you to dinner. All right then. And, and make waiting. you Indian food. What? Yes. That's I'm, bold. I'm doing it. That is bold. I want to know okay, if it's uh, good. But, but, that is bold. I hope you like I'm like, wow. Hey. I know, right? Wow. All right. It's like it's like people coming to my house and bringing me, here, I found a book on India for you. I'm like, oh, really? Oh, oh. thanks. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, Thank no, you. I won't do that. <laughs> no, mostly because I want to know if like what we can do to make it better. <laughs> yes. You know what I've done uh, during my book tour, which has been uh, just amazing with all the friends supporting me. Um, I've gone to my friends' homes in all parts of the country and I've cooked in their kitchens. So mm. let's go. We have a together. nice, we have a nice, very uh, cookworthy kitchen space. Fantastic. Not fancy, but uh, all the utensils. We love to That's cook. all we need. All That's the spices all you could want in mm. large quantities. We have <laughs> cupboards full of spices. It's ridiculous. That's awesome. This is music to my ears. <laughs> if you need four cups of cumin, we've got you covered. Yeah, we really do, actually. I'm not kidding. Uh, it's ridiculous. And then the Korean, what's that Korean? Bibimbap. No, well, we made that the other day. Chad made it, I mm. should say. Give, give him mm. all the credit. But no, I buy the, the Korean red Oh, um, the, chili pepper the powder for the powder oh, that is so good the by the pound <laughs> yeah because we love kimchi okay okay so if you want something spicy mm. um as a powder that you can tone down with other things um i will send you uh, a link to kolapuri thecha Please which is you. it's basically garlic and chilies mm. and, and you know it yep. is the spiciest and it's the bestest and chad is very interested in your garlic ginger ginger paste I read about that. I was oh, like, okay, garlic sure. ginger paste? I don't have to mince my own garlic He's like, I want ginger. that. Yeah. Oh. Keep yeah, it in the fridge? Yeah, what? Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> All right. Yeah. We do that. Well, listeners, you can follow Madushri at writemadushri.com. Follow her on Instagram and LinkedIn at writemadushri. This has been another episode of The Premise. Please follow The Premise on Twitter at PodPremise and be sure to subscribe. We're available everywhere you get podcasts and it really helps our numbers. It helps us boost, get more awareness of the podcast and the festival. And we really appreciate your support. You can visit us online at thepremisepod.com and sandiegowritersfestival.com. And be sure to rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Until next week, thank you for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye. Say goodbye, Madushri. Oh, goodbye. Oh, <laughs> I thought I had to shut up. No, no, you can say goodbye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>